0: Today's scripture is from Exodus 17, 8 to 16, on page 59 of your pew books. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going of down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of the Lord, and called and called the name of it the Lord is my banner, saying, hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is God's word.
1: I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Exodus 17 as we look at this story together this morning, and let's pray as we open God's word. Gracious God, thank you for your power at work on behalf of your people. Thank you that we see that preeminently in the cross. And so, Lord, this morning as we open your word, uh, we pray that we would hear from you. We know every time that scripture is opened, you are speaking. And so we pray for ears to hear your voice and eyes to see you, Lord and hearts uh, that are ready and eager to be changed by the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the third year in a row, the modern persecution of Christians worldwide has hit another record high. Uh, this was the finding of the 2017 World Watch List, which is published by the advocacy group Open Doors, who identified 2016 is quote the worst year yet for persecution in modern human history. Uh, so what are the, what are we talking about? Well, if you pay attention to the news, we're talking about the two suicide bombers, uh, at the Coptic churches on Palm Sunday just a few weeks ago, killing 409 or uh, excuse me, 49 uh, people. We're talking about 12 Nigerian Christians who were killed on Easter Sunday, a week later, uh, just a couple weeks ago now, while worshiping at church. Talking about persecution of Christians in North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Syria, Iran, Iraq. In any given month, uh, we're talking about 322 Christians being killed for their faith, 214 churches or Christian properties being destroyed, and 772 forms of violence committed against Christians. And those, uh, as Open Doors puts those statistics out, those are only the substantiated cases, ones that have been reported and verified. All of the unreported attacks and, and things like that don't show up on the list. We're talking about the erosion of religious liberty in the modern world. Uh, In the 2017 report of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, they concluded, quote, that the state of affairs for international religious freedom is worsening in both depth and breadth of violations. This is a government report. Um, Just this week, they added Russia to the list of countries of particular concern um, for calling groups uh, extremist and therefore banning them from the country. We are incredibly blessed to live in a country where any religious persecution we might experience ranks somewhere in the category of annoyance to inconvenience, to be honest. Um, But things are getting worse. If you believe what the Bible teaches about morality or human sexuality or the uniqueness uh, and supremacy of Jesus or heaven and hell, uh, then you will risk being socially marginalized in today's world. I mean, you, you will lose friends because of your faith. Uh, you could lose your job or even have your business be shut down by the government if you don't sign off on the new moral orthodoxy and deny your religious convictions. And so the reality, though, is that none of this is really new. I mean, you you can look at the statistics and you can get nervous and alarmed and whatever, but none of this is new. As bad as things are globally, and as bad as they may someday get here in the U.S., there have always been in this world those who see God as a problem, His promises as a threat, and therefore His people as prey. There have always been people who have treated God and his people that way. So the question is, in every age, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? When the world turns against us, around whom or what will we rally for protection or for the the preservation of God's promises and plans? Will we just kind of give up? Uh, Will we conclude that, that God doesn't keep his promises after all? I mean, look at all the suffering among his people. Uh, Will we turn to a strong man, some sort of uh, powerful leader to be our hero and save Christianity? Or will we rally around God himself as our banner, the standard of the cross lifted high? This is a question that ancient Israel was forced to wrestle with uh, shortly after they left Egypt and entered the wilderness. Uh, So last week we picked up our series through the book of Exodus. We had been working our way through it. We'd taken a break for about a month uh, in Colossians. And now we came back to Exodus last week, following Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, where much to their surprise, they found that they were facing difficult trials, uh, hunger and thirst, and they were not too happy about it. As Pastor Bruce showed us last week, Uh, There was purpose in each trial, to teach them to glorify God, and there was a pathway that he gave them, his law, and underneath it all there was the hidden source of their life, Christ himself. But Israel did not see that immediately, or for a long time after that. Uh, They spent their energy grumbling about their difficult circumstances and blaming God and Moses for it. They would have rather died in Egypt as slaves than starve in the desert as a redeemed people. Three times they complained and three times God both rebuked their unbelief, but then also responded in grace, responded in grace, meeting their their needs. And he did it each time through his servant Moses. One of the lessons that Israel has a hard time learning during their wilderness journey is that God really is with them and that he is leading them through his servant Moses. And one of the signs of God's presence and power so far has been the staff in Moses' hand. The staff with which he struck the Nile, turning it to blood. The staff with which he parted the Red Sea. The staff with which he just Struck the rock earlier in this chapter, providing water for God's people. And so we come to our story this morning, and it takes place in the exact same location as the last time Israel had grumbled about not having what they thought they needed uh, in Rephidim, where Moses struck the rock. And it involves another significant trial on their way out of Egypt toward the promised land, this time not of thirst, but a trial of their safety. But the message is actually very similar. Here we have another example of Israel's well-being resting more in the staff in Moses' hand than in the swords in their own hands. A reminder that God himself is the one who provides the strength to protect his people and accomplish his plans. It begins with a surprise attack. Uh, by the people of Amalek at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Who in the world is Amalek? Where where did this people come from? Historically, uh, Amalek was the grandson of Esau, uh, Jacob's brother. So this people group is a distant cousin to Israel. But that doesn't stop them from seeing God's people uh, crossing the wilderness, coming out of Egypt, and deciding to take advantage of them along their journey. Uh, maybe they thought this was a threat. Um, more likely, this was an easy target. This was an easy target. Uh, as Moses later reflects on this attack, he says in Deuteronomy 25, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who are lagging behind you and he did not fear god Uh, similarly uh, similarly in psalm 83 uh, it looks back on the same event and says they lay crafty plans against your people they consult together against your treasured ones they say come let us wipe them out as a nation let the name of israel be remembered no more For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Moab and the Hagrites. Gebal and Ammon and Amalek. Amalek. So this is not a misunderstanding. This is not a dispute over territory. This is a willful exploitation of God's people at their most vulnerable place. Like a lion. You, You watch those nature shows. You know who is it that the lion goes for in the herd or the pack? It's the little ones straggling behind, trying to separate them off from the pack to attack them. That was Amalek's strategy. It's just like Pharaoh all over again when you think about it. Because if if they are, if their goal is, as Psalm eighty three puts it, to to wipe out Israel as a nation, that means that. Amalek's wars, not just with Israel, their war is with God, which makes them again, just like Pharaoh and what he was trying to do. Remember how in the very first chapter, when Pharaoh sees Israel multiplying and takes God's blessing as a threat, he tries to stop Israel from multiplying, which means he's trying to stop the promises of God from being realized. His war is not just with Israel, it's with God. In the same way, God has promised his people this land. And as Amalek attacks them on their way, they're not just attacking Israel, they're attacking God. And it's interesting even to see that as the story begins saying that Amalek fought against Israel in verse 8, notice how it ends in verse 16. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So When the world treats God's people as prey, they are opposing the plan and promises and person of God himself. In the same way, when Christians are persecuted today, whether in violent ways or or less extreme forms of, of marginalization, the world's not just treating us as prey. They are opposing the authority, plan, and kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said to Paul. Uh, when he was still Saul in Acts 9. Saul had been sent to Jerusalem in order to arrest the Christians in that town. And Jesus meets him on the way uh, to Damascus. Uh, he'd been sent to Damascus, not Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus meets him on the way and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So think about that. Saul is sent to arrest and put christians in prison jesus says hey you're persecuting me to attack the people of god is to wage war on god himself so how do we respond how how does israel respond well in verses 9 to 13 we see their battle plan form and then unfold in verse 9 moses says to joshua choose some of your of our men and go out and fight the amalekites Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, this is the first time we meet Joshua in the story of the scriptures. Uh, and and he will go on to play a pretty important role as Moses' successor and the one who actually leads Israel into the land. Uh, we don't know how old he is here, but we see already Moses certainly trusts him. He puts him in charge of the army uh, to fight against Amalek. Which is a very different tactic from what um, God had led his people to do when they were at the Red Sea. If you remember just a few chapters back in chapter 14, Israel was up against the Red Sea. And, and the last time they faced an army, Pharaoh's army, they're bearing down on them. Uh, they didn't have to lift a finger. Moses says to them, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Here, they're actually instructed to engage in the battle themselves. Um, But that doesn't mean that the victory is in their own hands. Quite the opposite. Because while Joshua leads the troops out on the ground, where does Moses go? He stands up on top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. The staff that had parted the sea and struck the rock and so on. And, And notice which part of the battle the narrator's most interested in? If you were going to turn this battle into a film, you know, you would probably spend like 45 minutes, you know, reenacting whatever happened on the battlefield and so on and so forth. The narrator, where does his attention go? We don't learn anything about what actually happened on the battleground. His entire attention is focused on Moses up on the hill. That's the critical point about their victory. Verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. And so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So, What is the deal with Moses' staff? I mean, when you think about battle strategies, this one's strange. Uh, I mean, this feels like something you might see in like Lord of the Rings where Gandalf holds up his staff or something like that, or something out of Harry Potter. Uh, What is it doing in the Bible? What is Moses actually doing when he lifts up his staff such that Israel prevails and then he lowers it? It's like a switch or something like that. You can imagine him figuring that out, playing with it. Oh, this is it, you know, what? This is just weird. What's the deal with the staff? Uh, The traditional answer is that this is a sign of prayer. Elsewhere in the Bible, people lift their hands in prayer. And so Moses is praying and prayer is what wins the battle. The problem with that reading is is not that prayer is incapable of such great things, but that the story doesn't talk about prayer. Uh, and nowhere in any of the other things God tells Moses to do with the staff does he tell him to pray. He doesn't pray when he parts the sea or so on and so forth. And, so, and even to suggest that, that his prayer only worked when his hand was raised and then turned off when it was lowered kind of turns prayer into something mechanical or, or even magic as though if you just do it the right way, the results will happen. Others suggest that, that when the soldiers would look up on the hill and see the staff raised high, that that would give them motivation to fight harder. So it was, the staff was their banner. It was their military standard, the, the signal flag that, that an army would use uh, in the ancient world to communicate in battle. So you think of those, again, those films where you, you see like a medieval army or or, or something and the battlefield is full of the soldiers, and there's somebody up on the hill kind of using flags to tell them what to do next and so So the staff is like you know the flag, the banner, the standard, which I think is getting closer to what it means, but it still doesn't make sense um, that it that it's simply their inspiration to fight harder uh, for starters, God's the one who gets the credit for the victory, not Israel's resolve and and hard work moreover if we just look at the previous story israel has not taken god's presence very seriously yet why would they start now so i don't think it's just inspiration to the troops the simplest explanation is that god was exercising his power through the staff just as he had done at the nile and the red sea and the rock not that the stick was magic It had no power in and of itself, but it was simply the instrument through which God exercised his power in the hands of his servant Moses. And so just as Moses, uh, just as as God's power was what parted the sea, so now it is God's power that gives Israel strength to succeed and and defeat Amalek. Uh, The difference here is it just took a lot longer this time and Moses's arms got tired on the way. Which means that as the instrument of God's power, uh, Moses lifting up the staff was in fact expressing his reliance on God. And the staff does actually become a kind of banner or signal for Israel, but not just merely to inspire them as the actual power of God at work. And both of those ideas of Moses relying on God and Israel seeing their banner waving high, both of those are captured in the conclusion of the story in verses 14 to 16, where Moses commemorates the victory and God promises to bring Amalek to justice. So verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And we see two things there in that conclusion, uh, both of which have to do with God's commitment to His people to avenge them on the one hand and to defend them on the other. Uh, first is, is God's resolution to avenge his people, not in a sense of petty revenge, but in the sense of bringing evil to justice. He announces before Moses and Joshua that he will, in fact, bring Amalek to a full end for their crimes. Um, and Moses reiterates that in verse 16. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Several times this story is referred back to later In Deuteronomy 25 and in 1 Samuel 15, when God's people talk about what Amalek did and God's promise to bring them to justice. Now, we read something like that. And the seriousness with which God judges evil sounds harsh to our modern ears. God will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. That's strong language. But remember, Amalek's goal was to wipe Israel out. Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. God's judgment is just. What they sought to do to his people, he will do to them as a punishment for their crimes. And moreover, not only does justice require dealing with their sin, his judgment is also a necessary part of defending his people. You think even in our modern court system, when a judge sentences someone to prison, it's not you know, a violent offender. When a judge sentences a violent offender to prison, it's not just the punishment for their crime, it's also to protect the victims from their assailant, keeping them away. And so God in judging Amalek's sin both deals with Their crime and defends his people. God's power to defend his people is the second thing you see. So he's dealing justly with sin. And we want a God who will not allow evil to have the day. That's the kind of God we want. Uh, Even though uh, it sounds harsh to our modern ears would we would we want a god who's just going to allow the world to to run on its own terms we want a god who cares about justice and who will make everything wrong right again and god commits to being that kind of god he also commits to defending his people and that's the second thing we see when moses uh responds to this victory he does so by building an altar to worship god and celebration and then he names that altar so Sets up some sort of pile of stones in which he's going to sacrifice something. He names that altar, quote, the Lord is my banner. He's my signal, my standard. Again, it's that imagery of the flag flying high, communicating a message to an army or to a kingdom. Isaiah uses this imagery a lot. Um, Isaiah 13, too. On a bare hill, raise a signal cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. This, in the context of, of Isaiah 13, is signaling the attack on Babylon. Let the troops know it's time to go charge. And so that's the picture of God, of the Lord being the banner. So, So who do we rally around? Who do God's people rally around when under attack? They rally around the Lord himself. He is the signal of their security, lifted high. Apart from him, they can do nothing. And Moses reinforces that when he explains uh, why he named the altar this. So he, made, he named the altar, The Lord is My Banner, for a hand upon the throne of the Lord. So, so, or perhaps a hand up to the throne of the Lord. And God chose to execute his power through the staff. And, and that means that essentially what Moses is saying, for Moses to grip the staff, and raise it high is for him to have a hand on God's very throne God's power is present here to bring to protect his people and to bring their assailants to justice the lord himself is their banner and so so while the staff really is that that instrument through which god executes his power To raise it is an act of reliance for Moses. He's depending on God, not himself. Even if he's not praying explicitly, he's trusting God for the victory. And it is a kind of banner or flag signaling God's presence and power for the people. And all of this comes together at this moment in the story as a lesson to Israel. The lesson that they've been having a hard time learning that God really is with them. And that he really is working through his servant Moses. You didn't trust me to provide water or bread. You didn't trust me uh, earlier in Rephidim at the rock. I had to have Moses strike it with the staff. I want you to trust me. To see that the power for your security lies more in the staff in Moses' hand than in the swords in your own hand. That's God's lesson to Israel. That he himself is the power to protect and defend his people that it's not up to them. So, what about us? What does all of this have to do? This ancient story of something that happened to Israel, what does this have to do with us? How do we respond when the world turns against us? Around what or whom will we rally for our protection or for the preservation of God's promises? Do we rally around our laws if if religious liberty is, is, is decaying, what we really need to do is rally around our laws. We need more protection in this country. Now, that's a good thing. It is a gift and, I think, a basic human right to religious liberty. And we should work hard for that. But does losing religious liberty, does losing that protection destroy the church? Is that our hope and security? You know where the church is growing fastest in the world right now? Places where Christianity is illegal. Guess where it's declining? In the West. And so is religiously, I mean, it's good and we should work for that, but is that really the banner around which our hope and security rests? Do we rally around a hero A strong man, a powerful leader is going to take charge and save Christianity in the public square at all costs. That is a huge temptation. Whether it's a charismatic Christian leader, a political leader, we, we want a hero who will defend us and go before us and fight our battles. And we need gifted leaders in the church. There's no question about that. But human leaders will let us down. And they might even lead us astray in the process. So do we just give up then? Go underground. We're just going to retreat from the public sphere altogether. Uh, Do we take matters into our own hands and just seek revenge? Or do we rally around God himself as our banner? Which today means rallying around the cross. Just as, as, as the malice that this world has toward God's people isn't anything new, uh, so God's promise to defend and avenge his people wasn't limited back to, to ancient Israel. It's something he promises to do for his people in all days. In fact, later in Isaiah, as the story of the Old Testament moves forward, God promises to raise a signal not just for Israel, but for all people, to rally around. But this time, it's not going to be a staff. He's going to raise up a person as that signal. In Isaiah 11, verse 10, it says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, the signal, same word as banner back in Exodus 17, he will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah looks forward to a day when God's going to establish justice and peace on the entire earth. A day when his scattered people are going to be gathered back together. And the banner that he will lift in that day is the root of Jesse. A descent, Jesse's David's father. A descendant of David who will sit on David's throne. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the banner, the signal, the sign of God's commitment to deal justly with sin and defend his people. And so God calls us when we are under attack today to rally around the cross. That's our sign. That's our banner. So think about what God accomplished on the cross. So on the cross, God judged sin. The whole weight of his holy anger against human rebellion in every day and age for every person from from the white lie we told at breakfast this morning to the genocidal ambition of Amalek. All the whole weight of that sin, uh, of his wrath toward that sin, he poured out on Christ on the cross. God dealt with sin. He judged sin on the cross. Jesus taking that punishment As a spotless sacrifice. Taking the punishment we deserve. At the end of the day. Israel was no better than Amalek. And neither are we. Now hopefully we're not plotting genocidal campaigns. Or anything like that. But. In light of God's holiness. Even the anger in our hearts towards someone. Is an act of murder. According to Jesus. So we all fall woefully short of God's glory. And so we need not only to be defended from our enemies, but from the enemy within, which is the sin that fills our hearts. We need Jesus. And listen to what Jesus himself says about this offer of forgiveness through the cross. In John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, a later story in Numbers, So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And again, John 12. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus deals with our sin and defends his people from the sin within and from the attacks without. He is our banner around whom we rally. So what does that mean then for interacting with our quote-unquote enemies, for those who would uh, seek to thwart God's plans or take advantage of God's people? What does it mean for the cross to be our banner? Well, it means that Jesus died for our enemies too. And so that in Christ, we have a very different posture toward those who try to take advantage of us than ancient Israel had toward their enemies. Unlike ancient Israel, the church is not the agent of God's justice. Israel played that role in God's kingdom. They were the agent of his justice, and so God used them to pour out his wrath. He doesn't call the church to do that. He leaves the justice to Jesus. And that, therefore, frees us to leave judgment in God's hands and instead treat our enemies with love, with love. God will deal justly with sin, all sin, either through the cross where Christ paid for it and we're forgiven, or through the final judgment when he returns. And so we can trust Jesus in the face of opposition and, and, to rally around the cross, therefore, I think means two things for us. Rally around the cross when we're opposed and attacked. First, it's to recognize the God's at work in this. Just like ancient Israel, their, tri- their trials, their thirst, their hunger, that wasn't a mistake. It's not like God was planning the itinerary for, for Israel and their journey through Egypt and he just didn't pack enough for the trip. It was an intentional test to teach them to rely upon God. So it is today. Our suffering is no different. When we suffer for our faith, it is a test Peter tells us in, in 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God is at work in our suffering. That's the first thing we have to remember when we find ourselves opposed. But second, to rally around the cross and lift its high is to rely on Christ's power for our defense and vindication. To know that that our strength and security lay not in our own hands, but in God's hand and the victory that he has secured through Christ. Again, the cross frees us to love our enemies and pray for them and leave vengeance to the Lord. He will take care of the sin one way or the other, through the cross now or the judgment later, but that's not up to us. Uh, Paul summarizes it beautifully in Romans 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What's the first thing we want to do when someone opposes? Even even if they're not opposing us for our faith, but just for something else. First thing we want to do is curse them. Call down God's condemnation on them. That's not what he says to do. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. How do we respond when we are attacked, when we're opposed, when we're oppressed for our faith? Overcome evil with good. So how does, how does this help us? Again, first, knowing that God's going to judge sin and will bring wrongdoers to justice, either now through the cross or in the end through final judgment, that allows us to forego retribution uh, or revenge. It it allows us to say, I can love this person. I'm not minimizing what they did as wrong. Sometimes we feel like if I just let this go, they're going to get away with something terrible, and that's just not okay. I need to... Make my point or or whatever it is. Loving your enemies is not saying that what they did wasn't actually that bad. It's saying God's going to deal with the part that's bad. My job is to love. And so if someone's opposing you for your faith, what if instead of asking, how do I protect my rights in this instance? Or how do I preserve my reputation or my job? What if we asked ourselves, how do I love this person? Is there a need in their life I can come alongside and meet? If your enemy's hungry, feed him. How do I overcome evil with good rather than trying to get even? That's the first thing this helps us do. The second way Romans 12 helps us is to remind us that while we enjoy relative safety and peace in the West, there are hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters around the globe who are being attacked for their faith. Paul says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is an invitation to weep with our persecuted family, to to share in their sufferings in some way. And to to be completely honest, I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, I don't know. What does it look like for Westgate to be engaged with the suffering that our brothers and sisters around the globe are, are experiencing. I think part of it is loving refugees who are, who are fleeing for their faith and coming to this country. I think a big part of it is prayer. Is prayer. I mean, there are organizations like Open Doors or Voice of the Martyrs you can look at for, for more uh, guidelines, but, but are we praying at, at a minimum for the safety of Christians? But also for perseverance in the faith. Not just that the trial would go away, but that God would use the trial to accomplish his purposes. That Jesus would be on display. That that the people under pressure would rally around the cross. In the days uh, after the Palm Sunday attack on the Coptic churches in Egypt, the wife of one of the victims was interviewed on TV. Her husband was the security guard who prevented the, the bomber from entering the second church. And so he blew himself up at the gate and killed the guard and, and 11 others, but couldn't get into the building. Uh, his wife said in an interview, I'm not angry at the one who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you, and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place that I couldn't have dreamed of. Believe me, I'm proud of him, and I wish I was there beside him. So think about that. That's her response to her husband being blown up for his faith. And in the interview, there's this 10-second gap where the television host just sits there in silence until he finally exclaims, The Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Oh, how great is this forgiveness you have. If it were my father, I could never say this. These people have so much forgiveness, but this is their faith and religious conviction. These people are made from a different substance. They're made from a different substance. That is not something anything in this world can give you the power to do. That is the power of the cross. That is our rallying point. That is our banner, our flag, when the world turns against us. That God himself provides the strength to protect his people and accomplish his plans. And so I don't know what that looks like in your life. I don't know what it's going to look like tomorrow. But when we find ourselves opposed for our faith, may we rally to the cross. And lift it high, that others would see the power and presence of God through Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you love your people. Lord, thank you that you care more deeply for us than we can ever imagine. As we, we think, those of us who are parents, as we think about what we would do to protect our children and how we would give anything uh, to guard them, Lord, we can't even begin to imagine your uh, love and compassion and commitment to us. And so, Lord, may we trust you. May we trust that you know what you're doing. May we trust you in days when when we find ourselves at odds with this world. And may Christ be our banner. May we be free to love those who do not love in return. May we show them the love of Christ. And would you give us the strength to hold fast to him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.